0: Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful, as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Today, Adrian and I are delighted to be speaking with Professor Lou Marcos. Uh, Dr. Marcos is a professor in English and scholar-in-residence as well as the Robert H. Ray Chair in Humanities at Houston Baptist University. And he is also the writer of many fine books. And that's how I discovered uh, your work. Uh, It was um, when I had the privilege to teach both The Iliad and the Odyssey to a group of seniors, while I was also teaching uh, ancient civilizations, so uh, everyone from the Egyptians all the way up through uh, through the the Greeks, uh, with a group of seventh graders. And as I was uh, studying for both of those classes um, and asking people what should I be reading, Uh, Lou Marcos, your name just kept kept popping up, and so. I'm delighted to be able to uh, invite you onto the show here and talk to you about some common interests that we have. Um, But I also understand that you have a connection with Adrian uh, that goes back and there's some Charlotte Mason connection, which I'm sure she's eager to talk, talk about as well.
1: Yeah, I was really excited when Trey invited you onto the show. I was like, wait, I've met him, he's great. And uh, so I remembered that we met at a responsive education solutions conference for headmasters and uh, mostly just for headmasters and leadership. I think maybe teachers too. And um, our VP of academics brought you in, uh, Kyle Queel. Yeah. And uh, you did a wonderful, amazing talk on the abolition of man. And, um, and then we went back to the office. I worked in the academics department. And... <clears throat> you and I chatted for a little while. And for some reason, I have no idea why I've only done this a million times to a million people. I handed you two Charlotte Mason books. And I said, you should read these. And lo and behold, you told me last month when we contacted you, you had actually read them, which blew my mind. And I do remember for months and months looking for those books, I couldn't find them. I was like, you are the one that had them. <laughs> and so you were so inspired that you wrote a article about charlotte mason in uh the classist magazine published by accs you shared it graciously shared it with me and we will be posting it on our facebook page after this podcast so our listeners can enjoy it because it's a beautiful beautiful um article and maybe we can have you back to talk about
2: that too <laughs> oh it would be great I, I i compared charlotte mason to william wordsworth i did my dissertation on uh, the prelude by Wordsworth and the great romantic poet. And I was just amazed by the connections between the two. It's funny because I also wrote an article comparing Wordsworth to Joseph Pieper, leisure as the basis of culture. Yeah. You could have brought that in with Charlotte Mason too. There's an understanding of a, a good kind of leisure where we grow in that sort of active passive leisure, if you wanna call it. And you know, I spoke about abolition of man for the leadership and it went so well that every year now, my daughter, Anastasia, teaches music at Founders Charter, Classical Charter School, run by Jason Karo, who's a fellow Greek. Right. Uh, and,
1: and I every- know Jason really well. Oh, great. Mm-hmm.
2: And his wife, his lovely wife, Loami, mm-hmm. Rico, uh, she is in charge of bringing in new teachers. And so every year, they bring me up to Dallas. And what I did is I took that speech on Abolition of Man and spread it out to a three-hour sort of in-service so that we could really work with these new classical teachers on understanding what classical education, why it's so important, what it means to instill virtues in students. All of these things are, are so vital. And I got to tell you both, I mean, with every passing year, I say, oh my, classical Christian education is even more important than I thought. Okay. With here, I see it as maybe the salvation of this country. It is what we need. And uh, the number is growing because the quarantine has shown us what's happened to public education. Uh, I'll, I'll give one more story and we'll dive in here. But Jason Carros told me that he has students where they go to his classical charter school, but their brother or sister goes to a regular public school. And during the quarantine, when the teachers were sending readings back home, Jason told me that parents were noticing the massive difference between what they were reading in the classical charter school, responsive ed, and what they were reading in the regular public education schools. And people are starting to see what education is and what it isn't. So these yeah. are, are vital. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm.
0: Well, uh, these are all things that are near and dear to our heart and, and our listeners are, uh, we, we know from their questions and, and the things we're seeing on the Facebook page, um, they're searching for answers. And there's a felt need there, there's a hunger. And so um, I think that we'll find in our conversation today that we're gonna be able to uh, make a lot of connections with the various names that have been mentioned uh, from Charlotte Mason to CS Lewis, uh, Wordsworth, others. I-, I have no doubt that we'll be able to make those connections for folks and also give them some uh, some inroads and some, some advice on how they can um, really pursue uh, their understanding of, of the type of education that we are uh, describing here. Um, Adrian and I, as we've been working on this show, we've been thinking very recently about a patron saint uh, that we can just sort of um, uh, have uh, there to, to uh, give guidance and, and, and also just sort of represent the work we're trying to do. And, and uh, although we're still in the discernment process, um, Ananias has oh. come up. In, in, our, uh, in, in our discernment. And what's interesting about Ananias is that he was called to minister to Paul, right? Of course, before he was St. Paul really, right. sort of at the very beginning of Paul's uh, conversion. And uh, there's the whole story of those scales being removed from his yeah. eyes, right? And we just find it so powerful that Paul was chosen by God to bring the gospel, right? To the Gentiles. And now I think we can say with some confidence that classical education, right? This Gentile project coming up through Christ (laughs) is being used to continue to educate Christians in the whole world, really. And so uh, we find that to be a delightful connection. And I wonder if you could help us um, think about how C.S. Lewis and particularly his work, The Abolition of Man can help us think about um, education and I have to admit, as I was reading it in preparation for this show, um, I must have been a lot smarter when I read this a few years ago because I was looking at my notes in the margins and thought, oh, man, I, I, uh, I'm glad I underlined some of these things for myself <laughs> because it's, it's a pretty dense work. And if you're used to reading um, the Chronicles of Narnia, which are delightful, or if you've spent some time in mere Christianity, um, you, may, you may find yourself... Um, Wading into the deep end, let's say, with the abolition of man. Mm-hmm. Help us help us understand how how we can approach this this text and, and why should we read it in the first
2: place? And let's not forget that the original audience of abolition of man heard it read out loud in a series of three lectures. So they must have been very good listeners, right? Now, you know, Baptists Baptist don't have saints, but we do have Saint Jack. Uh, you know, his nickname was Jack Lewis. He has Lewis, but his nickname was Jack. So Saint Jack is the one that we look to. I think the way to begin this is words are so tricky, so slippery, and they're getting more slippery. Um, it, it really goes back to John Dewey, but more recently, it comes out of John Dewey. But there is this idea of values clarification. And I remember the first time I heard that, my first reaction was, oh, they're, they're really teaching virtue in public schools. That's not what values clarification means. Values clarification means helping children construct their own value system. Values are totally different than virtues. There's a lot to the book, Abolition of Man, a book that every modern educator, particularly classical and Christian, must read. Maybe the most important book on pedagogy Mm -hmm. written in the 20th century tells us many things, but let's start by talking about virtue. Classical education, specifically classical Christian, but also classical charter, classical education is an education in virtue. What's the difference between a virtue and a value? A virtue is the attempt to, how do we put this, to orient ourselves against a divine transcendent standard, that which is good, that which is true, that which is beautiful. When I'm trying to be virtuous. I am trying to, um, to, to, to measure myself against divine and transcendent standards. Virtues look towards that for something that is true in all times. And I am trying to, uh, you know, is misdirected desire. Well, virtue is getting us back on track, orienting us toward the proper way of living. But values is ultimately a man-made thing. It is a culture-made thing that shifts and shifts and changes. And it's fashionable today, but it's unfashionable. Virtue, real education, is an education in virtue. Let's dive right to maybe the best-known part of, of this, and then we can look at other things. But Lewis, borrowing a metaphor from Plato, says that we are made up of the head, the chest, and the belly. Now, he gets this from Plato's Republic, where he speaks of our soul as being tripartite. There is the rational part of our soul, and that is linked to the head. There is the appetitive part of our soul, in other words, appetite. That's the I want, what Freud would call the id. That is our belly. But then there is the spirited part, and that part is linked to our chest. It's where the virtues are. And here's the problem. If you pit the head against the belly in a one-on-one battle, the belly is going to win. Mm -hmm. The rational part of us is going to be overwhelmed by the lower base desires. The head can only win if the chest comes to the rescue of the head. And the chest is where our virtues are. The four classical virtues of courage, wisdom, self-control, and justice. The three theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. The more general virtues, the transcendentals of uh, goodness, truth, and beauty. Just what Plato called the good. These things are what are built up in our chest. And a real education, a, a true liberal arts education. See we could have gone on calling it liberal arts education but because that word has been so destroyed we have to say classical christian but we shouldn't have to i should not have to tell you that i'm an evangelical christian or a born-again christian i should just be able to say i'm a christian and that would tell you that i actually believe in the nicene creed and the Trinity. but no because the word christian has been so bastardized i have to tell you i'm this kind of a christ-centered christian whatever spirit-filled if you're no Liberal arts used to mean exactly what a classical Christian education meant. It meant through a wrestling with the great books and the great ideas, we are building up the chest, We are building up virtue in young people. So they can be, especially in America, uh, uh, um, can be virtuous, morally self-regulating citizens. And that's what we're losing. Let's stop there so we can jump into the dialogue here. Hopefully I'm kicking it off here.
1: Oh, yeah. No, that's fantastic. I love that you uh, said that we have to call it classical education and not liberal arts anymore. I, we just had this conversation on our <laughs> Facebook page. Literally a few weeks ago, somebody said, can we call it liberal arts? And do we still have to call it classical education? And I made the exact argument you're making is that the phrase is so ruined. It, it really is. And it's so sad.
2: Yeah, it is sad because it's at liberal arts What's the, the word liber, liber from Latin, where we get the word liberate, a liberal arts education frees the mind from the idols of the marketplace, as Francis Bacon would say. It is something that it, it, it's, look, have, if you ask almost any public school teacher, especially of young kids, why did you become a teacher so I can teach kids to think for themselves? Well, it depends what you mean by that. Unfortunately, in the values clarification, it means teach them that they're their own autonomous individual. But what it should mean is if we train them through a liberal arts, a true liberal arts education, we'll train the mind and order the affections in such a way that they then can think for themselves, but they can't come in and think for themselves like that. It's not gonna work. They need boundaries, they need limits, they need an understanding. But the whole point is a proper training. If we're all classical people, grammar, logic, rhetoric, taking them through the trivium, I should say quadrivium too, but none of us understand what to do with numbers. Isn't it weird? We need some number people, Adrian. Well, well, Ravi Jay and Kevin Clark's book, Liberal Arts Tradition, takes up the numbers, but most of us are letter people, right? We still have to understand the numbers a little bit better, but at least let's start with the letters and let's start with a building up of the chest that, you know, that, that will allow them to not be fooled by the propaganda, that will allow them to really be critical thinkers, not critical in the modern sense. The modern word critical means, uh, I I have to uncover their agenda because they're just dead white male heterosexuals and I'm gonna uncover their, that's not what we mean by critical thinking. Critical thinking means a mind that is free to judge and to weigh and to balance because we are part of a tradition that goes back to Homer and Moses and comes all the way to today. And now I can assess what is being said to me or said at me sometimes. Yeah,
0: You know, you, you know it's interesting that you, you mentioned one of the, the, the modern ills of education, which is um, sort of looking for these agendas. Um, and, and I wonder um, if this will help us uh, link back to the way that Lewis opens the abolition of man, because in a sense, he, he does want to point out something that's going on, and, and he, he references a particular book. Um, and, and he interestingly doesn't name the title, although I did a bit of research and I figured it out. Good. And he doesn't name the authors, um, but he does want to make his reader aware of what is going on in this, um, in this text. And he does it in a way where he says several times, you know, I'm not necessarily—I'm I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not necessarily persuaded that they know even what they're doing, right? But they're so deep into it, and the student doesn't know what's happening, and they're getting this this propaganda, um, and and being informed in a particular way. I wonder if uh, Adrian, I think I think you had some a question about that.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, just when I first read it, this was the third time I read it. Um, To be quite honest, the funny thing is the first time I read it, I thought it was easy to read. This Mm. third time I read it was harder. (laughs) It was much harder. I don't know if I I was just reading more deeply.
0: I had the same experience.
1: I was like, why is this? Why did I think I understood this book when I read it 10 years ago and then five years ago and now I'm reading it? I'm like, I don't want to understand
2: it. It (laughs) is a little hard to get to kind of get the mind. (gasps) It's a weird and somewhat obscure way of beginning a book. But what he's trying to show is here is a modern education. You don't have to find the book. But now I should tell you, um, I talk about this book. I wrote a book called Restoring Beauty, the Good, the True, and the Beautiful, the Writings of C.S. Lewis. It's got a whole section on abolition of man. But we're also lucky because just this past year, Michael Ward, who wrote Planet Narnia, has written a book called After Humanity. And it's a book-length analysis of the abolition of man what this means, all the obscure stuff. It, it just, yeah. uh, and usually when you buy it, it sometimes will come with a small edition of The Abolition of Man as well. But okay, so if you, if you read his book, he'll actually show you the actual but that's not important. What we need to understand is in this book, meant for kids, they tell a story that Coleridge tells. And it's a story of two hikers who are in the alps and they see this waterfall coming down. And one person says, oh, that is sublime. And the other person says, that's pretty. And Coleridge, the poet, you know, rami the ancient mariner, he overhears them and he agrees with the first one yeah. and disagrees with the second one. Yes, that waterfall is sublime. It's not pretty. And what the textbook tells children is, of course, Coleridge was wrong because it's all in the eye of the beholder. Some people think it's uh, because art is totally subjective. It's only the way you respond to it. It isn't sublime in and of itself. It is the way you react to it. So what what it means to say your your, uh, reaction is subjective, if I'm looking at a flower and I say that's pretty, the flower itself is the object. It's a thing. Uh When I say that's pretty, I'm telling you that I believe that objectively that flower is pretty. But the modern person wants to say, no, the beauty, the prettiness does not reside in the flower. It doesn't reside in the object. It resides in my brain, in my perception of the flower. So that's what, what we mean when we say uh, art is subjective, because what I call beauty is not a real thing. It's only in my head. Now, this is really important, not only for the secular world, but for the Christian world, right? We all know, that the three transcendental, said Plato and all the way down said, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Hopefully, if you talk to a real Christian, they will say, yes, there is absolute goodness and absolute truth. What about absolute beauty? Ah, it's all in the eye of the beholder. You see, it's all taste and nothing more. So this this is becoming important and maybe even more important. Okay, but what's the point here? What he's saying is when you tell a child that that response—it's sublime—is only subjective. What you're really telling them is it's unimportant, right? Yeah. It's the problem. What's happened in the modern started in the Enlightenment. It's taken over. Is that it's not just aesthetics, the realm of the arts. It's whenever you're dealing with aesthetics—that's the beautiful—or you're dealing with philosophy and theology that's the true, or you're dealing with morality and ethics, that's the good, the modern world is telling us that all of those things are subjective. Mm -hmm. The objective are the hard sciences and, and they'll try to claim the social sciences as well. But when you move into the humanities, so whether it's poetry or the Bible, it is all subjective. And again, you're telling them it's not important. There are no standards, there's nothing you have to do, it's just all in your head, it's all subjective, and therefore, it's unimportant. And when you do that, you kill the chest, okay?
1: Right, right. And I think, like, he he was unfolding that through the whole book, from chapter to chapter, he unfolded it more and more. Now, the third chapter was much easier to understand, Yeah. <laughs> It was like, so any parents or teachers who are listening that read the first, you know, 10 pages of this book and think, I don't understand what he's talking about here. Stay with it. Just keep reading. Like, like, so, so tell your, tell our listeners how to stay with it. Like, and what, I mean, you're doing a great job setting up the, the.
2: Calm and carry on. That's what the British say.
1: Yeah. Just keep doing it. Just go. Right. Even if if you don't don't understand.
2: Right. Just, you know, just, just start thinking about how. When you went to school, they didn't teach you any history. They only taught you social studies. They're not teaching you facts about history. They're just teaching you mostly propaganda and social science stuff. But you, you want to keep going because, all right here, maybe this is a good place to start. When he says this, that modern education, okay, if you think of your, your children in the public school as chickens or birds, classical Christian education is like the mother chicken who wants to equip and teach her children how to fly modern education treats the chicken like a uh what do you call it? chicken factory that is going to use them for food right it's just like keep them here and don't let them get passionate about anything you, you have to follow it along because what's happening is it, it it doesn't become important till we see the long-term effect maybe i don't know if this will help or not i i like thinking about Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer said, what we've done in our modern post-enlightenment world is divide reality into two stories, like the two stories of a house, upper story and lower story. And in the lower story is the hard sciences. And down in the lower story, we have facts and we have, you know, principles and we have things we can state. But the trouble is in the lower story, the bottom floor, We don't have any free will. We're just part of nature and that's it. Where we're just, you know, in in a way, an object. Well, if we want to have will and freedom and meaning and purpose, we have to go upstairs into the upper story, the second floor. That's where we find religion, philosophy, and aesthetics, the arts. The trouble is, it's a deal with the devil because once you go upstairs, you get all those warm fuzzies, but you have to give up truth. You have to give up any kind of propositional statement. You can't say this is true and this is not true. This is good and this is evil. This is virtue. This is, vit-. can't say that. Everything is up for grabs. So we're stuck, right? And that's what's it. We, we can no longer access the deeper part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. As Lewis, said, you know, if, if, if you're a, a the post, a, a, a soldier at the post, and they're running to you, right? Mm. Running Kant's uh, categorical imperative, trying to reason yourself into courage ain't work. Right. You have around to run. No.
0: It's
2: going to be yeah. the memory of this little patriotic song, yeah. this thing that built up the chest, mm. this thing of goodness, truth, and beauty. That's going to keep you there when all of the so called science and logic is not going to work. It's going right. to be saying, And I'm proud to be an American. That's what's going to keep you there because your chest has been built up. And here's the real bad thing. This is how he ends uh, chapter one. There's three chapters. He ends chapter one by saying, you know, it's crazy, right? You can't pick up a newspaper nowadays, he says, that they don't say, where are kids with courage and zip and passion? Where is it? And he said, here's the crazy thing. In a sort of, uh, what does he put it? In, in, In a sort of, ghastly simplicity we remove the organ and then we demand the function right Right. we create men without chess no sense of virtue no sense of courage no sense of the good the true. we create men without chess and then we expect enterprise and courage from them we ridicule honor in the classroom and then we're shocked
1: yeah he says we make men we make men without chests and expect them virtue and enterprise.
2: Mm -hmm. We don't, we, 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 uh, ridicule honor. We make fun of it. And then we're shocked. And the famous, we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. So We're crushing their chest by it's all in your mind. It's all unimportant. It's all a fairy tale. But then when you need young people that have courage, it's not there anymore because you've killed it, because real courage resides in the chest more than in the head. Right.
0: Yeah, he, he also says that another point that's related, um, and this resonated with me as a father, uh, because he's addressing fa- uh, fatherhood at this point. And he says that just as much as a father gives of his body, um, uh, you know, when um, in the conception of the child, right? Uh, he, well, I guess fathers don't conceive, fathers, um, a, a father will, um, uh what's the word i'm looking for let's donate um, a part of himself in a way. that's right um so to um in the same way the father must give of his spirit to the child right ah, okay um so I, I think you're quite right dr marcos when you say that uh this is a book you know the abolition of man is a book that every educator should read and the way that it's written it is written in such a way that quite literally Every educator, doesn't matter um, where they live, um, where they worship, um, what culture they uh, are a part of, can pick this book up and read it, which can sometimes perhaps be a bit of a shock to the system of a Christian educator who finds this work to not be um, overtly Christian. All right. Um, so, one piece of advice that I might give to a, a reader. Uh, who is a Christian educator, um, would be to perhaps go back and read the first chapter of Mere Christianity, um, yes. right and wrong, as a clue to the meaning of the universe, and see how he's talking about these things in Christian terms, and then try to see how Lewis is actually going back and talking about something that, um, even though it's not overtly Christian, um I think we can make the argument that it's a very that it's a deeply religious book nonetheless um and it's not an apologetic work necessarily right. even for theism per se right it's a work that um is talking about what it means to be human and every educator needs to be thinking about that
2: this is why when i speak for classical charter schools i always speak on the abolition of man because it, you know without being overtly christian It is laying down the principles of a classical Christian education. Uh, And it it forces you to see that choices have consequences, right? What we do, what we're teaching in the classroom has consequences. What we are instilling in our students, right? Why are we shocked when students plagiarize, when we're telling them, do whatever you can to succeed? I don't understand why we're shocked when we're teaching them these very things. How can we... Uh To be honest when we're not instilling honesty in them the worst thing that ever happened to education the self-esteem movement mm-hmm. that's the idea that students are never allowed to feel bad about themselves yeah. you never allow them to feel bad about themselves you are creating monsters yeah. I say this often you know it's not like teenagers are more wild today the teenager boy in the 1950s was just as likely to get his girlfriend pregnant but he would feel a little bit ashamed and he might marry her, right? The modern person does it and feels no shame. You know, what scares me the most with plagiarism, this has always gone on. But mm-hmm. what scares me is when they plagiarize and they're caught and you can see in their eyes that they feel no shame whatsoever. Right. Now, here's the danger. Uh, if It's all over education. Now, everybody, the horror of shame, blame cultures like the Chinese where they're shaming people. Okay, now I would agree that the Chinese go a little bit too far. Okay, but it's no merit to go the other opposite extreme. Right. If we never instill a sense of shame in our kids, we're yeah. creating answers. Right. So the way I like to explain it when I, when, I do a lot of services is our job is not only to teach the Tao, the, the, the virtuous moral code. It's not only our job to teach the Tao, we need to instill in students how they are to feel about the Tao. They, mm-hmm. need to mm-hmm. that when they do something Betraying someone, they need to feel an inner loathing. Oh, that scares. Oh, no, no, self-esteem. No, no, no. They need to feel that. Now, if, if one of my kids does something bad and I say, I was ashamed of you, and they're like, oh. Now, here's what I don't do. I don't go and say, oh, it's okay. It's no big deal. No, it is a big deal. What I do is I hug them and I say, but I love you and you're valuable, right? And I know you're better than this, but don't do this thing that says it's no big deal. You've done something that is a big deal, but you are still valuable. Now you probably can't hug your students. Like I can hug my kids. Um, you, you'll get arrested. But the um, we have to get this in mind that we are building something. What are we in? Look, here's a funny example where every parent knows this, right? We always tell our, our, our kids, you know, be... be uh, be honest, be honest, be honest. And then we're in a, a grocery store and somebody gives us too much change and you're ready to walk out. And your son is like, oh, mommy, he gave you too much. Change. Shut up, kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we've got to be consistent. We've got to be consistent with that. But we need to understand if we're always cursing around the house, how do we expect our kids to sound right? If- The only music we listen to is the music on the radio, and we have no discernment whatsoever as to what's good music and bad music, then when the kids become our age, they're going to listen to what's on their radio, right, Mm or a streaming service. I mean, you know, what are we instilling? What we instill, what you reap is what you sow. That's what Jesus would say, right? Mm -hmm. Are we, uh, I'm sorry, what you sow is what you reap. What are we sowing? Into the chest. What are we teaching them about goodness, truth, and beauty? Are we teaching them it's optional, or are we teaching? Them? And Lewis, his idea of the Tao is that the the moral code is universal, right? What Jesus taught in the moral ethical sphere is not radically different from Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius or Socrates or Plato or Gandhi, right? Right. right. the law that God has written in our conscience comes to us from general revelation now yeah. i would argue and i'll bet most people would agree even secular people that the most perfect statement of the moral code is the sermon on the mount okay but it's not radically different so maybe jesus said right. do to others as you would have them do unto you," rather than don't yeah. do others what you would not have them. but in as much as jesus was a prophet and, teacher, and he was that in addition to being the son of god but in much he was a prophet he didn't teach things that were radically, radically, radically new. Right. Well, that's right. What,
0: what's most important there uh, is um, what's going on in the Gospels is not right. just what is being said, right. but importantly, who is saying it. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's what changed. Uh, The uniqueness of Christ is, is his, his office, so to speak. I mean, right. who he is, right? The person of Jesus Christ. And so um, I, I think we could probably um, circle back around to this at some point. Um, I think Adrian has some other things that she'd probably like to ask you about, but at some point, um, because this is my introduction to you, I would like to talk with you about the relationship between Christ right. and, uh, and pagan literature and myth, and, and I know that's something that you um, have spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about and speaking about, and this is something that, um, of course, was, was deeply um, important to C.S. Lewis, in so many ways probably prompted him to write The Abolition of Man was to show um, how all of this is connected. Um, so at some point I'd, I'd like us to circle back around to that.
2: One of, one of my passions is to bring Athens and Jerusalem together. Our mm-hmm. Greco-Roman and our Judeo-Christian legacy must be brought together. As Augustine brought it together to create Europe, okay? Uh, mm-hmm. What a classical Christian education does. That's what a traditional liberal arts education does. That's right, but, To understand, especially as Christians, we need to understand the absolutely vital distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Uh Special revelation is when God speaks directly, as he did to the Jews, Old Testament, New Testament, the prophets, supremely Christ himself. That is special revelation. But that's not the only way God speaks to us. Only in special to speak directly. But he speaks to all of us generally through creation. We see God's glory in creation. He speaks through our conscience, that that mm-hmm. talent, moral code. He mm-hmm. speaks through our reason. He speaks through our imagination. Mm-hmm. He speaks, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis, through the good dreams of the pagans.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: God has written eternity in the hearts of men. And we all yearn for God. That doesn't mean we can be saved on our own. But we all, we all have a census divinitatis which is Latin, or a sense of the divine, right? Uh We all have that implanted in us and we yearn. And that's why in the pagan classics, we encounter true things. Uh It's completely true, right? But we get some truth. Now, as Christians, we're lucky. We have the Bible as our measure, as our touchstone, but we can learn things from the pagan writers. Now, all of your uh, listeners are gonna know that C.S. Lewis was an atheist for half of his life. But a lot of people think that C.S. Lewis went directly from atheism to Christianity. That's the story of Chuck Colson. That's the story of uh, Josh McDowell. That's the story of Lee Strobel, but not Lewis. Lewis first became a theist, a believer in God. It took him another year and a half to come to believe that Jesus was the son of God. What was holding him back? Lewis, like myself, was an English professor, like me, loved mythology. I just wrote a book called The Myth-Made-Fact. I love mythology. And he read a book called The Golden Bough. And in this book by Sir James Fraser, he discovered an archetype, a sort of recurring story that appears in all the different pagan literature a story of a god or demigod coming to earth, dying a violent death, and then returning. Now, these are just myths, and they're really cyclical myths about the four seasons the dying and rising god. Uh, so uh, the Egyptians call him Osiris, the Greeks call him Adonis. The, the Babylonians call him Tammuz. The Persians call him Mithras. The, the, the Norsemen call him Balder, right? These names again and again and again. And Lewis thought, well, Jesus is just the same archetype. They called him the corn king. Why Why do I care about some rabbi that died 2,000 years ago? And then his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, a strong believing Catholic, sent to Lewis the words he needed to hear. He said, Jack, yes, Lewis, Jack, did you ever wonder maybe the reason that Jesus sounds like a myth is because he's the myth that became true. Folks, we were made in God's image. God has put an eternity in all of us. He's put in us a desire to reach out. Out of one man, he created all racism that they might reach after him and grope after him, though he is not far from any of us. For any of we live and move and have our beings. That's Acts 17, Paul speaking on Mars Hill at the Areopagus. And because of that, We yearn, we make up these stories because we understand deep down that there is a rupture between God and man and it needs to be healed. And there is a need for this cyclical life, death, and rebirth, but guess what? In all those other stories, it's merely mythical, but it looks like it happened one time in real time and space under Pontius Pilate. Think about it, if Jesus came And yes, he fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets, but nothing he did or said spoke to the pagans. It would be as if a foreign God had invaded the world. But in fact, Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah who fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets. He is the king of the universe, the savior of the world, who also fulfills the highest yearnings of the pagan people. And that's why we can learn from these pagans. They were in the dark, but they, you know what? They asked the right questions. They didn't always they have. A, that's right. They asked the so, right so. questions.
0: Adrian. If, if you'll start playing the organ, we'll do the altar call. Hey. And we'll, just yeah. go, <laughs>
1: go. well, I, I want to camp a little bit more on the, the Tao or Tao, however hey. you say it. I've heard it said both ways, just because I want our readers not to get hung up on it. I really, you're already explaining a lot of what it is, but kind of Summarize in everything you've said and use that to explain what the da- Tao the is.
2: Now, yeah, the, the technical way of saying it, the Indian way is the Tao, okay? But Lewis was a British and Brits anglicize everything. So he would have said Tao, just like the British say Don Quixit, Marquis and valet. okay? Uh, of course, it's always good to mispronounce French words purposely. Um, but so, so the same thing, okay? The Tao is the way Lewis would have said it's the Tao, okay? What is that? That is the universal cross-cultural moral ethical code that is written in all of our conduct. It's not that different from the natural law in Catholic philosophy. And finally, Protestants are picking up on natural law and are okay with it again. They, they weren't okay with it for a while, but now they're okay with it. Otherwise we wouldn't have had classical Christian universities, uh, co- colleges and schools. Well, so, so,
1: what, so tell our listeners, what is natural law?
2: Okay, so the natural law is, is the... It is God's moral, ethical standard that is written in our conscience. Now, we still break it because we're fallen, depraved creatures, but we all know that there's right and wrong, and Lewis calls it the town to remind us that whether you're in the West or the East, it's the same basic understanding, and it's worth buying abolition of man merely for its appendix, because in the appendix... Lewis takes all the ancient law codes of all the different civilizations and lines them up and shows how similar they. They've all got the 10 commandments if you will. It's similar because we were made that way. Now again, we don't follow it, but we know we should follow it. And anybody that says there's no such thing as the Tao, look, here is my definition of the Tao. Very simple. The Tao is the way you expect other people to treat you. Look, if there was not the Tau, if there wasn't a universal moral ethical, if there wasn't a natural law, then it would have been impossible to have the Nuremberg trials. After World War II, the Nuremberg trials in Germany were to put the Nazi war criminals on trial. Now, by that part, Europe was maybe, you know, it was just as postmodern and, and, and uh, morally relative as they are today, if not more so. So how could you do that? The only way you could have Nuremberg trials is if everybody agrees, whether they admit it or not. They all agree, number one, that there is such a thing as right and wrong, okay? Otherwise, there is no such thing. If if, if if it changes from culture to culture, then there's no way you can argue that democratic ethics are superior to Nazi ethics, if there's no code. So it means we know there's right and wrong. Now, watch this. It also means that we believe that the Nazi war criminals also knew the law code and also know they did, what they were doing was wrong, but they did it anyway. Right. Their okay. lawyer could have convinced us that Mr. Himmler had no idea that what he was doing was wrong. They wouldn't put him in prison. They would put him in an asylum. You understand the difference? Yes. Okay. Understand these things, right? If the if the 9-11 terrorists had survived the crash, we would have put them on trial. And if they told us, "And eh, that's okay in my culture, nobody would buy that. Right? We know that there's right and wrong and they knew it, but broke it. That's why we are guilty before the law. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you could loop back to the beginning
0: of our conversation and how Lewis starts the book. Um, because um, I would be very surprised if any of our listeners were not persuaded um, by both your words and Lewis's words and just their own experience of reality that right and wrong are objective realities. Now, that being said, um, we do live in, a, in, a, in an age in which that is um, being challenged and being, um, uh, uh, well, frankly, just it, it's, it's not as in the air as perhaps um, maybe I'm assuming it is for everyone who's listening. But generally speaking, um, I think, you know, if you choose to go into education, you believe that there are some things that are, true some things that are right some things that are wrong that are worth passing on that's why in so many words you're uh you're a teacher um so maybe loop us back to the classroom because lewis starts with the textbook right and how do we go from making the strong point that right and wrong are objective realities back to why it matters why the waterfall is sublime and not merely pretty
2: good we we have to start by teaching them that everything is not just your opinion. And it's also not that way because I'm the teacher. Okay. Mm. I mean, now you can say I'm the teacher if we're talking about a disciplinary matter and this is the way the school runs. But the truth is not the truth because I'm bigger and stronger than you. Okay. You mm. have to get them away from that. And we also, you know, things are, we live in a complicated world. I, I like to use this example. of If I'm driving along the road and somebody cuts me off or I cut them off, and we get out and we start arguing. You cut me off. Well, we both know that cutting someone else off is wrong, right? If I said, well, actually, I'm able to cut off anybody, then it's like, again, take them to the asylum. But what I mean by it's a little more complicated is I might say to this guy, okay, look, I will admit technically that I cut you off. But if you were a good driver, you would have seen that 18-wheeler barreling down on my butt, and you would have slowed down so I could get in front of you before I got run over. But you sped it, so you see what I mean. It, it, it's not always super easy, right? There are difficult moral dilemmas all the time, but we need to get across that there are standards against which we can measure it. And if we tell them that as soon as we get to beauty and literature and philosophy, that it's all in, in your head, then we're, we're, we're just perpetuating this idea that all that facts are dead facts, and everything else is a value and as a value is whatever society says that it is. So you get them to respect the great books and to wrestle with them. Now, they can disagree with them, but they need to recognize the authority of it. And they need to, from a position of respect, say, maybe they missed something here. Let me join the dialogue, the the Socratic dialogue, right? Now, in in a regular classical Christian school or classical charter school, the Socratic dialogue comes later, right? In the beginning, the grammar phase, they need to learn all all these linchpins and all these things. They need to learn it. But as they get older, starting in logic school and on and on, then there's going to be more Socratic dialogue because now their their brain has been honed enough and they've got enough vocabulary that they can start questioning things, right? So that's possible. Um, But they need to do that knowing that there is a truth out there And we are trying to achieve it. Look, here's the difference between Socrates and a modern post and a postmodern deconstructionist. Okay, if you've ever read the early Socratic dialogues, Socrates drives you crazy because every time somebody gives him a definition, he deconstructs it and makes it fall apart. Here's the difference, though. For a postmodern deconstructionist, deconstruction and breaking things down is an end in itself. Boom. For Socrates and Plato, the exploding of false definitions is the first step that must be followed by seeking after the true definition. Because I can't see truth with a capital T, while my mind is blocked by all these little Ts that are stopping me. But once I wipe them clean through the Socratic dialectic, then I can start moving as Plato does in the Republic towards an actual positive definition of justice. So you see, it, it, it's, part of it is our attitude. Are we coming to the, the books as I'm smarter than them and I'm going to tear them down and we're going to have a good laugh and I'm going to stand in judgment? Or am I someone who is also learning at the feet of these great masters? Using my brain, using my judgment and discernment, because that's what wisdom is in the Bible, discernment, using my discernment, but it is it, it is a dialogue that's disrespectful, I guess. Right, and- I would- Model I yep. would
1: add that, like what you just said, takes me into um, Lewis's book, *Experiment and Criticism*. Oh, Fantastic. Good. I mean, it is. Oh, it's so well. T- I, I, I've been rereading it. I've read it once. I'm rereading it, and I'm like, every teacher needs to read this book too. Yeah, <laughs> like, this is how not, you not approach literature. This is how you approach art, and it's really important. I, what you're saying, it has a lot to do with how we approach art. How we approach learning.
2: That that Lewis uses in in the Abolition Man Chapter One is okay, the green book, right? It's going to show you a piece of advertising to try to get you to waste all your money to fly to the Canary Islands, whatever, right? And so it uses all sorts of inflated language and sentimentality to to make you spend money you don't have. Well, Lewis says, you know, that's good if you could let them see through the propaganda. But what you really need to do is show them the difference between the manipulative propaganda and literature that is emotional and and, and even sentimental, but that is true and valid and genuine, right? Look, look, show them a a, a terrible soap opera, right? And then show them it's a wonderful life where you cry from the beginning to the end of the movie. But that is not because you're being manipulated it is because it is dealing with real human struggles and triumphs and so there's a don't say sentimentality is bad teach them that there is good sentimentality and there is bad sentimentality and that's part of building up the chest and building up their ability to discern and that's the trouble we are teaching our kids to be a bunch of cynics who think wiser and smarter than everything they can look down their nose at it they can do their virtue signaling and and make fun of everything, and not see the. They can now see the speck in everyone's eye, but not the log in their own. Put it in Jesus terms.
0: Right, Adrian. I wonder. You you've spent so much time helping teachers, uh, at the at the you know in the lower grades, um, and and Dr. Marcos, you you teach uh, at a at a university level. Um, I wonder, Adrian. Um, how early are we starting to see this, um, this uh, lack of chest, let's say. And, and, and it can't just be the, the schools that are doing it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the church and the home and the schools have to be all firing together like pistons in an engine. I mean, we have to mm-hmm. be working together. Um, so certainly there's, there has to be some uh, influence of the home as well that's having this, this effect. Um,
1: yeah, one of the stories that strikes me that really struck me the most last year was we were launching a new curriculum, a K 8 humanities curriculum for several schools and piloting it. And the one thing that blew me away and all of my staff was the feedback from the kindergarten teachers telling us that the children. We're really having a difficult time understanding and narrating Beatrix Potter stories. Oh, boy. And boy. that caused us to pause for a minute. And we started to wonder why would kindergartner children have a hard time narrating, you know, telling back what happened in a Peter Rabbit? <laughs> and we kind of started to think through this and realized we think that the little children today have a really hard time. Well, so narrating requires you to see things in your mind in sequence and order them. And these children are struggling with doing that. And we think it's because they're watching too much visual, the visual stimulus. And so they haven't been able to develop their ability to just slow down in the mind and, and, and sequence what's going on in the story. It's almost like the Beatrix Potter stories are too simple
0: right well that's oh, wow that, that, okay yeah. you know what that makes me think of is you know yes you have to have the the cognitive ability to sequence things certainly but you also have to care right mm. you have to care about little bunnies in the first place which children do by nature
2: By right? nature oh good
0: however if um they are amused right without the muse right if, if they are amused mm. to death at such an early age and my wife was just telling me at the dinner table tonight my wife is a speech language pathologist. And uh, so she works with very young children um, who uh, uh, have um, all sorts of various challenges. Um, but one of the things uh, that, she, that she learned about one of her students um, who had hmm. to get the latest session scheduled in the day um, because the child was sleeping all day, why? Well, mom says that, um, he's, he's four by the way, He has the iPad all night and he stays up all night. And so he just has to catch up on his sleep in the morning. And so he sleeps into the late afternoon. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, this, 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 these things are quite serious because it's not just a matter of affirming mentally. Okay. Yes. There's such thing as right and wrong. Yes. We need to restore um, (laughs) sort of uh, beauty and, and, and uh, these stories. Well, practically, how do you do that? Well, there are some things that you need to remove, right? Which is going to make mm-hmm. you terribly unpopular, very unfashionable. Yeah, and there are some things that you need to insert, right? That uh, have been preserved and passed down. And I think in so many ways, that's, that's part of the mission of classical Christian education. But you know what, say-
2: if, if you're the parent who is removing that device, which is good, yeah. then you've got to be super creative and show your kids what else to do. That's right? right. Well, Charlotte Mason would tell you, just go outside. Okay. Go outside and give them an adventure in the backyard. Go- Let them be bored. Yeah, there we go. Like, oh, that's cool too. Yes. <laughs> Let them be
1: bored because when they're bored, they're going to figure out how to get creative. Yep.
2: That's right. That's right. Don't tell me boredom is a lack of imagination. Like you're going to get out there and tell a narrative about what you see in the backyard.
1: It's necessary for children to be bored. Yeah, that's true. It's necessary. We all got creative when we were kids. Now, because we
0: were bored. Dr. Marcos, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up Charlotte Mason because um, Adrian was one of the first people I met who was really making a strong case, You know, along with um, along with Karen Glass and- um, Francis Schaefer's daughter. Right? Um, Francis really daughter? That's Susan
1: the... Susan Schaefer McCauley. That's the one yeah. book I gave oh, you, that's, that's right. That's the one book I gave you, right. Uh,
0: yeah, of course. Uh, in so many ways, um, continuing her work But at the same time, making the connection for us uh, as contemporary educators, that Charlotte Mason is continuing that classical project as a Christian, right? And Mm -hmm. so I wonder, how did you come in contact with Charlotte Mason? um, (laughs) Right there.
2: there? Adrian, put it in my hand. (laughs) That makes sense. (laughs) And if you read my essay, I I begin my essay by telling you what happened. Uh, School got canceled because of, I don't know, some kind of storm. And so I said, all right, I'm going to read the two books you gave me. They, they were books about Charlotte Mason. They weren't Charlotte Mason herself, but they had a lot of, enough quotes in it to see. Uh, and it got me thinking, yeah, I mean, get outside. A, a right. lot of problems with depression and bipolar and everything else is because they're stuck inside and they never walk outside at all. Go outside.
1: Oh, and Lou, if you have not actually read Charlotte Mason let me convince you to do so. <laughs> <laughs> I've
2: read bits and pieces, but not, not a whole book. Oh,
1: her books and I, and, are and beautiful.
2: I met, uh, I met a group. It was a, it was a Catholic group, actually, a long time ago, Catholic homeschooling group that were all following Charlotte Mason uh, and, and, and looking at those things. And, uh, you know, like I said, balance it, right? Mm-hmm. Some of us want to, you know, want to sit inside of our office and just read all day. But there's also the balance of getting out there and interacting and, you know, play. I mean, okay, Freud did much more damage than he did good. But one of the good things he did is help us understand that play is the way children work. Okay. You can't stop them from playing because the creative play is how they're learning about things, right? And how, how they're exploring right. and whatnot.
1: So he scientifically proved what Plato said.
2: Yeah, that's true. Right. right. All the way back. Yeah. Oh yeah. Gymnastics is as important as anything else in Plato, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Music well, well, is super important to Plato.
0: Music. Well, well. Uh, you know, play, I think it could be argued that it, it is just something that human beings do, whether you're a child uh, or, or an adult. Bishop Barron has, has some uh, uh, good things to say uh, about. He, he talks about specifically, he's talking about the, the context of the Mass, but it could be said about worship in general is a form of play, right? It is, it is a way of delighting in God. It is a way, I mean, uh, even your liturgical churches. I mean they even have the costumes to go with it right i mean and i mean that in, in all due respect Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. bishop baron says this is a way in which we uh we enter into this 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 type of play and um and so yeah let's 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 not in any way um uh relegate play to children but let's return it to childhood because yeah. uh children um and this relates back to charlotte mason um i think i think we're getting out of it but one of the things that we're needing to probably shake loose of within the classical Christian, um, movement, let's say, for lack of a better word, uh, is this sort of let's, let's get these, you know, preschoolers in this really rigorous academic program from day one. And that's going to be because, oh shoot, you know, when they're in high school, they, they can't write, you know, an essay. So let's just scale it all the way back to pre-K and start early. And I think, uh, I think we're missing something there. And I think, I think what's at risk is that we, we enter into, um, we can easily enter into what C.S. Lewis is critiquing here and, and not um, you know, giving them these, these uh, sort of rigorous structures and, and uh, sort of explaining everything away to them. Uh, you know instead what? of just filling here, their chest with.
2: Here's another everything. thing that Charlotte Mason can help us with, what you're saying here, if you stop doing this over rigorous thing, you will stop having the war on boys because Uh, boys are particularly suffering from this because they uh, need to learn outside and get out there and get all. And, 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 and so we're really, really hurting people. And uh, I mean, the Germans already do this. I mean, they they basically force parents to put their kids on some kind of Ritalin if they want to send them back to public school. We're uh, all do that. I don't know if they're enforced, um, but it's terrible. We got them on these drugs from a very early age when they just need to be allowed to play. And especially allow boys to be boys um uh-huh. so it is dangerous what, what, what's going on and and uh um so like i said they it's wonderful we have all these resources uh-huh. and Absolutely. we all on these resources i uh, feel
1: like, like i have two more questions we never got okay. to and we're out of time <laughs> so no, um
2: such a good conversation <laughs> it's so just... good
1: um and i'm like oh uh-huh. there's so many more there's lots of quotes in the book i wanted to discuss oh well it's okay um I want to. We, we always end our podcasts with asking our um, guest uh, one of two questions, and you can choose which one you want to answer. But the first uh, option is what is a quote from a book that has had a huge impact on you? Or who is an author that you think is underread or often misunderstood that teachers ought to be paying more attention to?
2: Well, since we're doing Abolition of Man, uh- <laughs> One of my favorite quotes, I already did the, the famous quote about the ghastly simplicity, but there's another great quote that's so full of wisdom. And Lewis says, I would rather play cards against a man who was quite skeptical about ethics, but was raised to believe a gentleman never cheats, than play cards with an irreproachable moral philosopher who had been brought up amongst sharpers. And what he's saying is, is What's been instilled in us is very important, right? So this guy, it's like, it's like the 60s, right? A lot of those kids went wild and became hippies, but the ones who had been properly trained by their parents, trained up a child in the way that he is to go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it, they came back, right? Mm-hmm. But if they raised their kids without the talent, they were, then boom. So, so yeah, he may say he's skeptical, but deep down he understands because the virtue has been instilled in him. But this other guy can 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 quote Kant and every other philosopher. But if he's been raised by people uh, who think getting ahead is the only thing, watch out for that guy. Right. So that that's a great. It's a phrase that's that's great uh, philosophically, but it's also very practical uh, if you think about it. And Lewis, mm-hmm. one more from there. The the the, the let me see the, the 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 role of the class the the modern educator. It's, it's more important for the modern educator to irrigate deserts than to tear down jungles, mm-hmm. right? The problem with these students are not that they're too sentimental or too passionate, that they're not engaged enough, right? I mean, they, they, look, there was a time that maybe people were too much into what's called bardolatry, you know, bowing and scraping before Shakespeare and Milton and Chaucer or anybody else, mm-hmm. but that's not the problem today. Mm-hmm. We could use a little bardolatry today Um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, there was a time when we could have used tolerance, right? That's not today. All they know is tolerance, they need standards. So we need to see what the need is and sort of fulfill that. And right now it's to irrigate deserts.
0: Yeah. That's great. I I think that's all very well said. Um, And as many challenges as there are and, and I think it's I think it's right and just that we point out specifically um, what needs to be uh, addressed in terms of uh, helping families that have these small kids, um, because the, these these small kids are are completely helpless. They're completely at the uh, at the uh, the mercy of, of their, their parents and guardians and teachers. Um, and for those uh, for those older students, college students, young adults. Um, I think that we can find some hope because one of the things that I think C.S. Lewis would probably observe about our contemporary situation is that although we have, um, you know, uh, you know, people leaving church and um, uh, denying Christ, uh, perhaps denying the faith that they were that they were raised in, um, you know, with with some some really, you know. Um, you know, some weird examples that 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 when you look at it are, are really minority groups. Um, most people are desperately trying to figure out what it means to be a human, yep. asking those big existential questions of who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? And they're searching for communities of practice, right? They're looking for a story, a narrative. And I think C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man says, yeah, Of course you are. (laughs) We all are. And what he doesn't do in this book is he doesn't say, "And who you're looking for is Jesus Christ."
2: That's right. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's it's there, you know.
0: But it's 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 almost like the uh, he's he's laying the groundwork um that that starts that conversation. Right. And and so I think one of the things that that can happen, and and this is something that I I haven't fully articulated. But I think some of the work that is going on um, that I know you support and Adrian supports in these in these charter schools um, if we can just have more humane schools yes right that's right then uh, then, then we can then we can uh, you know as Christians um, evangelize um, to human beings
2: yeah right? that's right that's right yeah you, get, so. you consider it pre-evangelism right that's right If if they are rational and reasonable and can argue, then you can present it. You know, Alexis de Tocqueville said democracy uh, can be destroyed by the tyranny of the majority. Uh Today, I think he would warn us about the tyranny of the minority, which is what you just said. I mean, you know, they they, they try to make it seem like this is everybody, but it's a very, very, very small group. Uh, But they just make a lot, a lot, a lot of noise. And people can't stand up against it because we have no chest. That's right. We can't stand up against it because we don't know who we are anymore, and we don't have a sense of ourselves, and so we give in to cancel culture. And you, you know the the was a Nie- Niemauer that said, uh, first the Nazis came for the Jews, and I wasn't a Jew, so I said nothing. And then they came for the Catholics, and I wasn't a Catholic, so I said nothing. Right? Yeah. And then they came for me, right? And so we need to 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 be courageous, but courageous with joy and laughter. Okay, not cynical and cutting down all the time. Right. But sort of joyous, joyish kind, joyous kind of courage uh, that will make what we're doing so attractive, not just to the parents, but to the students themselves. Right. Right. It's there. And 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 you know, the, the salt and light is there. It just needs to keep growing. And yes, we need more classical charter schools because not everybody can afford to send their kids to a private school. Mm-hmm. So we need to also reform it from within. And it can be done, you know. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's it's not as bleak as we think, you know, you know, a good principal like Jason Carlos can mm-hmm. do. OK. And last thought, remember that the real religion of America is utilitarianism. If we can show them that our schools present better results, we're going to have so much more leeway. And guess what? Our kids do better on the standard exams, because we don't teach to the exam, which is destroy public education. We teach them how to think properly, and they end up doing better. So that, that's our big. That did you ever think about it? Why do they allow Christian groups to go into prison? Right? Isn't that public? Because it's the only thing that works, the only thing that cuts down the recidivism rates and allows them to survive in the outside world is Christian stuff like what Chuck Colson started. So remember, utilitarianism. Let's show them what we can do. And, and, you know, the minority is going to attack us, but the majority is going to start to realize, hey, they got something going on here. Maybe i got to look into this. And that's the seed.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much, Lou. This was a treat.
2: Great to be on. We'll have to do it again. Maybe with my kids some days. Uh, Definitely. My son teaches grammar school Latin at the Geneva School of Bernie, Texas, near San Antonio. And my daughter teaches music at Jason Carlos' School, founders Classical Classical Charter in Lewis, near Dallas. So we're all spread yeah. out. We're Dallas, gonna we're area. definitely
1: gonna have all you guys on together. Right. try it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education also be sure to join the conversation on our facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education we are a listener supported podcast so your support makes this podcast possible as the great artist and educator john ruskin once wrote well my friends the final result of the education i want you to give your children will be in a few words this they will know what it is to see the sky they will know what it is to breathe it and they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven.